What got you there with got you got you What got you there with Shonda Laney got you there with Shonda Laney What got you there with Shonda Laney got you there with Shonda Laney What got you there with Shonda Laney Commander Rourke T Denver has run every phase of training for the US Navy SEALs and led special forces missions in the Middle East, Africa, Latin America and other international hotspots. He starred in the hit film Act of Valor which is based on true SEAL adventures. His New York Times bestseller, Damn Few, Making the Modern SEAL Warrior, takes you inside his personal history and the fascinating, demanding SEAL training program that he oversaw. In this episode, Sean and Rourke talk about his past experiences and how that has shaped the leader that he is today. For the What Got You There listeners who love to travel and want to see the world, listen up. We've teamed up with Globekick, who make it affordable to enjoy peak life experiences with like-minded people from around the world. Globekick expertly designs, curates, and scouts global adventures for you to join. Each trip lasts one week and is designed to balance their unique blend of adventure, culture immersion, and relaxation. Globekick has some epic adventures planned, such as cage diving with great white sharks in Cape Town, South Africa, dog sledding and northern light chasing in Norway, and to see the rest, head to globekick.com. If you want to travel the world with your kind of people and not break the bank, then make sure to stop at globekick.com and enter code WGYT to receive 10% off your membership. Rourke, thanks for coming on the podcast today. How are you? Thanks for having me, brother. I'm, I'm excited to be here. Yeah, Doing no. good. I mean, a name like Rourke Denver, did you just come out of the womb with an American flag bandana on? There's only so many options. I mean, when you're, uh, when you're, when you're set up with that, you really can only go a couple directions and a couple are really bad and a couple are really good. I hope, I hope I've made good choices. No, I was uh, telling my wife who I was having on today and she was like, that is the coolest name I've ever heard. So yeah. Yeah. We certainly it. have a lot to unpack today, but, uh, can you give the listeners kind of just a brief overview on, on your story and then we'll dive into some of those details. Yeah, the I guess the elevator story is I grew up in um, the Bay Area, California, um, when it was normal. You know, like we didn't know the tech world was going to explode the way it, it did. It was just felt like kind of a normal, um, but by no means the mean streets, but kind of middle class, normal upbringing. You know, and now now the home I grew up in, I don't think you can get into for over, under like $7 million. And you better have sold a dot com to live in that town. So um, that place has just gone nuts. But yeah, it grew up in the Bay Area. Um, you know, great dad and mom. I was born blessed, uh, blessed in, in my, uh, my, my upbringing. And then, uh, a younger brother that I, uh, uh, sharpened myself against as, as friends and buddies my whole life, loved playing sports. Uh, uh, lacrosse is the one that eventually kind of took the most. And I, I ended up playing, um, back at Syracuse, uh, kind of in the mid nineties and in a, in a great era of Syracuse lacrosse where we were banging heads every year, uh, you know, for the championship, which was fantastic. And then in the, the, I guess the fall of my senior year of college, I had absolutely no idea what I wanted to do next. I, I um, you know, didn't want to get a job, loved getting adventures, liked playing rough. Uh, I'm a big reader, and um, I was reading Winston Churchill uh, at the time, one, uh, an autobiography he wrote much later in life called My Early Life. And something about that book really served as a call to action, that military service, which I hadn't really considered previously. We've got a lot of military in my family, but uh, it wasn't something that, that I'd had a, a kind of feel for. 
that really hit me at that point as, as, as the right place for me to kind of start uh, as an adult. So uh, I did some research and I found that about 80% of the people that show up to SEAL training don't make it through. That sounded like the right odds to me. And, uh, and here we are. So uh, 13 active duty years as a, a platoon commander, assault team leader in the SEAL teams, and then kind of finished my career on active duty running training for the SEALs, both basic and advanced. And now I've got my own company called Ever Onward, and I do a lot of leadership consulting, culture, uh, you know, culture building and human performance focused uh, stuff and having a lot of fun with it. So uh, make it up as I go along. Yeah, I mean, you, you mentioned your time at Syracuse. Your father was a rower at Syracuse, right? Is that how you ended up going there? Uh, it's it, in a very circuitous route. I mean, my, both my parents went to Syracuse. My mom's dad went to Syracuse. She grew up there. My dad grew up in Brooklyn. Uh, so yeah, he rode crew there in the sixties. And then, um, so, so, you know, you kind of like, I guess the school that your, your dad went to for sports anyway. So growing up, I remember watching Syracuse basketball and football and, um, I was aware of lacrosse. I remember seeing a real early game, one of those great Hopkins, um, Syracuse games, just always thinking, God, I would give anything to play that sport. Growing up in California in that era, there's very, very little across. I mean, it's everywhere now, obviously throughout the country, but back then uh, it was very unknown other than mostly in, in private schools. So I, I was, I, I played football, basketball, soccer, all the sports growing up, but I, I was actually big into aquatics in high school. So I swam and played water polo and I was getting recruited to play water polo in college. I was going to go play at a big, you know, kind of equivalent program to Syracuse and lacrosse in, in water polo out in California. And then I saw a little three by five card coming out of an English class. My sophomore year of high school, it said lacrosse club starting kid had moved from the east coast wanted to play so we got it going and you know we scrounged up some equipment and that, that, that was the first time i put my hand on a stick and um it just it just was one of those games i, I just took to i mean I was, I was a good athlete so i i knew um team sports you know i knew i knew how to pick and roll and how to you know set screens and where the ball should go and and all that stuff and then i just you know like many many young lines you know when you get a lacrosse stick in your hand you can't can't get it out of your hand. So I was hitting the wall and playing hard. And I, I went back to Syracuse for a summer camp and the coaches kind of said, you're, you're from where? And we said the Bay area, California, like, look, you might be, you, you know, you might be a little behind some of our top recruits, but you're, you know, you're big enough and fast enough to play in D one. We'd love to have you. And it, it was just incredible. Yeah. It really worked out. Oh no, that's a great story. And I mean, your father, it seems like he had a pretty large impact on you. I've, I've heard you talk about his no complaining policy. Some of the early mornings you guys go to fishing. Can you uh, kind of elaborate on on that? Yeah. I mean, my, my dad is just a very disciplined, you know, kind of focused old school guy in, in all the best ways. And so, uh, you know, my brother and I grew up uh, going on fishing trips with him. We've fished a lot for steelhead and, and anybody that knows anything about steelhead fishing, a large uh, portion of that time is suffering in wet boats or on rainy rivers, standing in cold water, trying to catch these uh, very, very difficult to catch uh, trout. So, um, something about being a young man and, 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 you know, I'm sure he did it across everything we did, but I remember on some particularly harsh trips where you're, you know, seven and eight years old, right. When I'm sure you're absolutely forming some of the basis of who your personality will be and, and how you're going to act in the world, particularly as a man, when you're looking at your dad, you know, I was freezing cold and my hands didn't work. And I'd look over at my dad and he, he wasn't complaining. So I was like, well, I guess we don't complain. And, and so that just kind of stuck, you know, and, and those things are, those things are big, big kind of waypoint anchor point moments in people's lives. So uh, it set me up for success. I think across a lot of spectrums. Yeah. It's uh, it's been a good fit. And um, he gave me a real gift with that as a young man. 
yeah, I mean, developing that toughness, that grittiness. Um, I'm curious, what is your your mental thought process when you decide to attend Syracuse, play lacrosse, you're flying over there from, from the Bay Area? I mean, what were your expectations? Like, do you ever think you were going to be an All-American, a captain, a two-time national champion? Uh, I wouldn't, I, I certainly thought there was a real good chance if I, if I made the team, I'd have a, I'd have a good swing at the national championship that was in that era. You could, you know, you couldn't mail it in. Of course, you got to play the games, but you had as good a chance as about three or four other teams in the country, really in that era that were going to be truly banging heads on Memorial day weekend. So I, I knew, I knew a championship was possible. Um, I don't know. I jumped into the deep end of the pool. I, I think I've always enjoyed that. I've, I've liked uphill challenges. I think if something's easy, I'm not particularly interested in it. Um, so the idea of going to a place where I knew I'd have to scrap it out um, really meant something to me. I, I think I could have gone to, you know, any of the D3 programs, probably a bunch of other big, um, big D1 programs or, or, or you know, uh, certainly capable programs and probably seen the field earlier. Uh, but I really liked um, the way Syracuse played the game, anyone that's ever been recruited, recruited by Roy Simmons Jr., um, you're either going to instantly want to go play for him or you're, or you're probably going to absolutely want nothing to do with him. He's just one of those type motivators and, and um, human beings. And, and I was in the, the category that wanted to be around him. And, and I take some of the best um, lessons I learned, you know, both as, as motivating people and, and kind of focus in life from the lessons he taught us um, that went way, way beyond the lacrosse field. As far as the All-American, all that stuff, I, I, I really have always and will always, and when I talk to people through speaking events and kind of consulting on leadership and training, I'm like, you can't, you know, you can't win to win and you can't, you know, will um, championships or accolades through anything other than grinding and work, right? So the, the work is what does it. So, you know, you work to win, you work to gain championships. And so all I knew is I'd, I'd give my max effort when I got there. And then that, that's what usually leads towards, you know, postseason accolades and, and championships. So I do the work and uh, if the work results in good things, then all the better. But that, that was kind of the mindset going in there. And I, I didn't know what I was getting into. I mean, I, I, I couldn't believe how good people were when I got there. It was, it was quite a, quite a, quite a, um, uh, uh, wide awakening to show, show up there and see how good the skill set was. But, you know, that was fun to me. It was fun to kind of figure out how to compete and uh, become part of that team. I mean, you've led some of the most elite organizations in the world. And for you to talk about Coach Simmons and the, and the type of leader he was, that really speaks to his character. You mentioned some of the, the smaller things, and I know he almost took an artistic approach to how he would teach you guys. Any Any lasting impressions he really left on you? Oh man. I mean, uh, you know, myriad it's, it's, I can't even probably quantify and I wish I'd been better in that age. And, and if, if any young person is listening to this podcast right now, this is going to sound like one of the weirdest pieces of advice coming from, you know, a 240 pound Navy seal assault team leader, start journaling, start journaling, keep a diary. It, you gotta like write down the things that happen in your life, big and small, because later in life, you're going to recognize that some of the small things were huge. A bunch of the huge things were small and you're going to want to remember it. And if you live a good life, you're going to forget a ton of it. I wish I had better notes about it, but yeah, the, the lasting memories of coach Simmons, um, were kind of both. They were big things and small things. You know I mean? He just, uh, he really recruited a, a certain type of player. He recruited, he used to say thoroughbreds, you know, horses that can run. I mean, we were always, 
you know, physically able to run with and often run past a lot of teams we played. And then in our preseason, when we do the horrible, you know, sprints and, 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 the, and the tough stuff leading up to when we start playing games, he just was constantly in your ear about being a horse, about being able to beat people in the fourth quarter. I, I don't think we ran more than anybody else, but there are a whole lot of games I can remember when we could run people into the ground late in a game. And, and I think that was him just almost willing that or driving it into our subconscious at a point where you just kind of believe that to be true. Uh, you know, he told us that, that you should just have a disdain for mediocrity, that, that doing something other than the best you can do and going out to fight every day to win is, is not worth doing. And, and, and he just, uh, he just was a magical um, motivator. He'd do it through, as you said, these kind of artistic and often um, tricky ways. You know, he'd tell a pregame. I, I wish I had recordings of his pregame speeches. They, they were never, you know, win one for the Gipper type things or, you know, storm up a mountain uh, uh, to, to win a day. It was some, you know, it was a story about a lighthouse and a ship getting in an argument and that you should be unpredictable. I mean, it just was these, these incredible things that halfway through, all of us would be looking around the room and be like, well, this is it. He's finally snapped. We've lost him. Coach Simmons is done. He's gone off the reservation. And then he'd bring it back home with, with this unbelievable kind of moral to the story. And then he'd connect it to the game and you'd just run out of that tunnel ready to go uh, take scouts. It was, it, was, it was special playing for him, for sure. Man, something you just said, disdain for mediocrity, punched me right in the face, wrote that down. Absolutely loved that. One of your former teammates, Casey Powell, was on the podcast and, and he talked about Coach Simmons the same way. And you mentioned the grueling draconian type running exercises you guys be doing. And I Coach Simmons actually said he's never seen anyone run harder uh, than you and that you just had a next gear. Have you always been able to embrace the suck and suffer like that? I really always like the suffering. I, mean, I can't think of a better, I mean, I really can't think of a better compliment from coach than that. Because to be honest, the, the skill level of that place, I think I can say honestly and humbly was, was in some ways beyond me. It, it just, I didn't have enough years to get up to, you know, the level of a Casey Powell or Roy Colsey or Rick Beals, just these unbelievable players. I got the chance to play with. I, I, I think I earned the honors. I got my senior year and was able to compete and, and defend anybody in the country. It's also because I got to guard guys like Casey every day and, 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 and bang up against that. But um, I always liked the suffering. I mean, I, 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 I think, a lot of the great performers figure out very, very early on that you're not going to be able to, you know, you can't control your, your raw talent level really at all. I mean, that, you know, God gave you that or, or whatever you believe the alchemy of traits and genetics that, that, that you're born into this world with that that's pretty fixed and finite. You can develop those, but I think just the raw material that that's kind of given what you do with that is on you. So, so how hard you're, you're prepared to work, how hard you want to go, that, that's your choice. And it is utterly a choice. You either say, I'm going to keep going until I have nothing left, or, or you're going to start going slower and, and not, not put it out. So um, I, I really prided myself, and I don't think it was pride in a, in a shallow way when it came to sprints of, of just, just winning those sprints. And, and th there were guys on the team that could get me in the first two or three sprints that there wasn't anybody that get me in the last sprint. And when we do those suicide, when you run out and back out and back and coach would do those to a point where you thought, again, he'd lost his mind. 
I just, I just love those things. I mean, I just love that it, you couldn't control the hurt and you just keep going hard. And, and so, yeah, it was definitely my, 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 the only thing I figured I could control to compete against the talent pool that was there was outwork everybody in the program. And, and there's only a few guys I can count. I, I could name them that I, I think worked equally hard or in that same level. And it, it's, it's, it's a small group of people that do that. Everyone worked hard, but there are people that are willing to go extra. And, and I think the extra leads to good places. Yeah, I mean, that, that's the type of teammate you want, and that's the type of teammate that helps build championship teams. You mentioned your reading and Winston Churchill's autobiography, My Early Life. I want to know what about that book just truly inspired you to, to then enter the military? Uh, there were a lot of things about his upbringing that were certainly, you know, hugely different from mine. I mean, he was he was born kind of into the aristocracy. His father was a, a, a diplomat and, and certainly could have been prime minister. Uh, he never got that, you know, that call or that privilege. But I mean, he, he was kind of born into the higher born society, which which is I wouldn't say um, well. If you're born in the United States, you're you're kind of born into a higher society. It's a it's a gift to have been born here compared to the ugly parts of the world I've been. That that being said, you know I, I wasn't born into you, you know some upper crust life where I'd be at private schools and all that stuff going through, um, you know going through my younger life. But he wrestled with things that were similar that I wrestled with. He he um, he had a really hard time in math. I had an exceedingly hard time in math. I had a learning disability that really really made math and science a challenge. But I love to read and write and. and and so I focus more on that. And consequently, I can I can write a declarative statement. I can I can put a sentence together in a powerful way and in an appropriate, you know, grammatical way that I think makes it come alive. And and his command of the English language um sits very, very much at the top of, of that skill set. I mean, there's people that could argue, um, you know, who has a better command of the English language, but we're starting to talk about like Shakespeare and people like that that can write uh, and command the language as well as he could. And, and there was just something about that writing, this desire for adventure, this desire to serve and go kind of test yourself as a young man and then get into this leadership position just really called to me. So, so it was kind of all of that. It was his upbringing. It was seeking challenge and, and, um, and hardship and, and, and wild adventures to then go into a life of service. And, and look, if those things hadn't happened, um, you know, he, he was the man of the 20th century. I mean, if you talk about the way the world is shaped today, uh, we would be dealing with a very different, you know, obviously European theater. And if, if, if the Nazis hadn't been stopped and, and things hadn't, gone the way they went and that there's no way to argue against that Churchill wasn't a huge, huge player in that force. Uh, we'd be living in a very, very different world. So that, that, that those are the things that kind of stuck with me. Any other biographies of historical leaders that you absolutely have loved? The uh, personal memoirs of Ulysses S. Grant are, are phenomenal. He wrote those basically on his deathbed. He, he, he knew it was going to end for him soon post um, you know, post the, the, the war. And so his personal memoirs are absolutely out of this world. Uh, I love some of the ancients, you know, Marcus Aurelius's meditations and um, uh, some of the writings of the Stoic philosophers I really enjoy. Um, they just talk about kind of bearing and dealing with the, the hardships of life. I like that stuff. And, and so, um, yeah, those are, those are a couple others I, I enjoy. I love reading about people and their, their struggles and what they learn. That's, that's the good stuff. It's just tangible and uh, something you can connect to. So you know you want to enter the SEALs. Did you go to the recruiting office up there in Syracuse? 
I did. I walked into a recruiting office down in uh, kind of Armory Square there in Syracuse. I, w- I walked in to the Navy office and said, hey, I want to be a SEAL and I want to be an officer. I'm not even kidding you. Like there was laughing. I mean, it was just no- nobody had come in there for that. They-, they knew the numbers. They're like, sorry, like nobody. I mean, whatever. We'll draft up the paperwork, but nobody nobody makes it in that program. And I was like, ah, let's drop the paperwork anyway, because I'm, I'm going to make that work. They weren't wrong. My first application did not get picked up. So I had to reapply, and that, that's kind of part of the game. They want, they want to know how committed you are. The, the officer pipeline is just staggeringly competitive as far as the talent, the pedigree, the, the, the guys that apply to that. So, yeah, my first package got turned down cold, and I'll never forget that phone call from my dad. I still have that letter from the Navy that said you're not good enough to be a SEAL officer, and, and I reapplied and uh, proved him wrong. Oh, I absolutely love that. I mean, I know you mentioned you're not a math guy, but the attrition rate of this, the SEALs close to 90%. I'm sure you saw that and that absolutely fueled you, didn't it? Yeah. I mean, the thing that was funny is when I showed up there, the thing that really struck me was I kind of found the peer group that I wanted to be around. When, when you're early in training, there's so many guys, you're really just kind of trying to keep it together and perform on your own to make sure you see the next day of training and the next evolution that's coming. Once you get kind of through hell week, you've re- really whittled down the class to a, a very core group of folks that probably aren't going anywhere unless they make a big mistake in training or they're terrible in the water, which haven't played water polo. I knew, I knew I'd be fine in, in the drink. Um, you just kind of, I just kind of felt like this is the peer group I want to be around. These guys run suicides like I do. They go hard without, without any external motivation. They just go this hard because that's who they are. And so I really felt like I found a peer group of people that was the the right type of people uh, to be a, be around. And you know, iron sharpens iron, and I got around a lot of good iron in that program. Yeah, I'm sure you did. I mean, the confidence level is something I'm really interested in. And and prior to showing up the buds, was there any doubt in your mind that you were going to finish? Um, there wasn't, I I say that humbly and I I don't mean, I hope that doesn't come across in an arrogant way. I I think most people that make it through seal training, which is an an exceptionally small number of folks that try, they know they're going to make it. I mean, I I could tell my class started with about 180 folks. We graduated 22 guys on, on graduation Friday. I bet there was one person of those 22 that was probably like, Oh my gosh, I made it. You know, <laughs> I, but I think for the most part, everybody sitting there knew they were going to make it. If you'd made it twice as hard for them, they still would have hung tough. And if you probably made it half again as easy, most of the guys that quit would have quit. There's this threshold uh, of suffering and, and challenge and toughness there that most people hit their meter and they peg it out and they go ring the bell and quit for the guys that um, don't uh, there's, I frankly think bodies and spirits would break uh, in such a way that they just collapse on the on the training grounds before they'd ever quit. Yeah, I mean, we, we don't need to go into the details of BUDS. I'm sure anyone can watch any documentary, read plenty of books on that. But there are a few things I want to pick up from your BUDS experience. And in your book, Damn Few, you write about kind of the random acts of instructor violence. Can you can you hit on that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's, uh, that's kind of one of, you know, I, I figured that one out when I became an instructor. I did not understand it uh, on an elemental level when I went through training. So, so I coined this term, random acts of instructor violence. I actually think it is the secret sauce and one of the pure magical things about that training program. I always worry when I talk to buddies that are running the program now, senior leadership is always trying to figure out how to do, and, and rightfully so, how to do the program better and how to make sure they're getting the best 
best product out the back door. Uh, I think some of this has gone away a little bit, which which I, I think is a critical error. What, what random acts of instructor violence means is, is, is SEAL training is hard no matter if you're doing everything perfectly or if you're screwing up. Obviously, you're screwing up. SEAL training is going to get a lot worse that day. Like when you when you screw up as a class, you don't make a timeline, you don't show up where you're supposed to be with the right gear, the instructor staff will basically cancel what was on the schedule and just start destroying you. You know, physically, um, you know, cold water immersion, just just beating the hell out of you. I don't mean with punches, but, you know, the way they do beatings with push-ups, sit-ups, pull-ups, running, and, and, and the, the savagery of that training. One of the things we do as instructors, though, is we'll give a class, um, you know, a set of instructions that they have to follow to the letter. And sometimes they'll get it perfectly right. They'll execute it perfectly exactly as we ask them to execute it and we'll beat them worse than the day they failed. And what will happen is people will then kind of you'll get three or four quitters usually in evolution like that. because They'll they'll say, hey, this is B.S. This isn't fair. I'm like I did the thing right and we still got beat. We still got punished. This isn't my type of place. And they leave. They quit. And and the point that they're missing is on the battlefield, which is what we're preparing people to go do in the SEAL teams, it isn't fair. And you can do everything absolutely right, and you can still get killed. You can still have a catastrophic result, even though you did it perfectly right within the tactics and the procedures we said to do that we know work on the battlefield and we're always refining those, but that can, you can do it perfect and it can go wrong. If you're the type of person that when you do things perfect and it goes wrong, you're going to quit. You're not made to do that job. So it's this ability to, to kind of develop cultural resilience, even in the face of, of, you know, bad odds or things going wrong when you do things perfectly right. That that's critical to our, are guys performing on the battlefield. And so that, that, that's what I think random acts of instructor violence um, teaches a young line. And so it's one of my favorite things from the program. I hope it never dies. It, it definitely didn't when I was, when I was running it and uh, it's important. Yeah, no, I'm happy you wrote about that and so glad we got to talk about it here. I mean, you do a ton of leadership training and speaking and you just mentioned culture a second ago. I mean, what lessons on culture from the SEALs can be applied to kind of everyday businesses, some of these organizations you work with? I think you need to keep it simple. I mean, I think culture really is the the end game and story of most of the high performing organizations I, I've seen in the world, whether that's sports, whether that's a business, whether that's a family. If you have a culture that drives towards success and the direction you need to, to meet with success in whatever endeavor you're attacking, the rest of it will mostly fall into place. If you have the right culture, the, the rest of it just becomes X's and O's and you can tweak and change that. And, and it's kind of different for a lot of different people. So, uh, you know, in the SEALs, we start it from day one. You show up at that training program, you look around, you know, the the, the compound where we do the training and there's, there's these simple um, – you know, quotes and things like that up on these, these, um, you know, kind of blue and gold boards, uh, that, that line our training ground. And it's very, very simple principles. It pays to be a winner. The only easy day was yesterday. Be someone special. It's very, very simple things that, you know, you just kind of, they do, they, they sound like some motivational poster, but if you take them serious, you're going to be a serious operator out there on the battlefield. And I've seen it in sports teams and I've seen it, uh, you know, companies. I mean, look, I don't care if you like the Patriots or hate the Patriots. It feels like people fall into either one of those two camps. 
They are clearly doing something way beyond better weight training, better routes that they run in practice, better you know strength and conditioning or recovery protocols at the Patriots like organization. Then then there's something else going on there compared to that. Because I, I, I find it hard to believe every pro football team in the NFL doesn't have a totally reliable, capable strength and conditioning program. <laughs> and they probably know exactly how to coach their quarterbacks and receivers. Why do the Patriots win almost every year? There's something else happening there. They bought into some non you know, me type culture where the team is more important. So lo and behold, no matter who the receiver is, Tom Brady is still making that team run and that engine go, and they never are out of the fight. I was at, I was actually at that um, Super Bowl when they were going against the Falcons, and I was there at halftime. You're like, wow, Atlanta is steamrolling these guys. That Patriots team came walking out of the locker room, and you could just see, you're like, they are not done. They're going to keep going. And then it was just like grind after grind after grind, play after play. And you're like, this is not happening. And it just happened. And that's that to me is culture that that's culture beyond, you know, tactics, man, absolutely spot on with that. I'm really curious about seals and, and how you guys are able to to process and acquire new information, whether you're planning for a mission or just going through buds. And I've talked to a number of my buddies who are seals and they said, once they completed the training, it was almost like you guys had opened up their mind where they could learn faster. They could think quicker. Was this true for you at all? Um, I would say yes. I mean, the, the thing that SEAL training does is it, it, it inoculates you to hardship in a way that's unique in the world. So it is so hard physically and kind of emotionally and spiritually to get through that program that when you do see the finish line, you're like, okay, Roger that what could hurt me now? And even though you can be trained perfectly and then go over and get killed on the battlefield. So trust me, things can hurt you. Your mindset is such that you've just kind of moved the needle for the things that are going to rattle you or, or, you know, stop you in your tracks. And so when you have an entire organization that doesn't believe they can fail and knows they're going to go win on the battlefield, that's a pretty potent, um, you know, cocktail for performance. It was the same thing when I played at Syracuse. I can tell you right now, in the four years I played there, there's only one game I went into, one in all the games in four seasons that I didn't think we were going to win. Unfortunately, I was right. And unfortunately, it was the last game I played. I just knew there was something off, something was wrong. We were going against an absolute Titan in a Princeton team that year. So, I mean, it, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a guarantee we could win even if we played our best game, but we didn't. And I felt it going in every other game. I played at Syracuse, I was utterly certain we were going to win that game. If you go into a fight that way, you're starting on a good foot. And, and so I think that's what happens with SEAL training. You come out of that program, you believe in yourself, you believe that you can do the things that are going to be asked of you. And another thing that's neat about the SEAL teams that, that not every military and certainly not every organization on earth enjoys is we very much open the books and value new ideas, the crazy idea, the, the wild hair concept that nobody's thought of, we, we really do value that. Nobody gets crushed because they came up with a crazy way to rethink the battlefield or rethink a mission. I mean, if it, if it doesn't seem sound and we're not going to use it, we'll tell you that. And we'll probably do so harshly because we like giving each other a hard time. But if some guy has a crazy idea, it's like, you know what, I think if we try this, it might work, we'll go do it. And so if you're somebody in that organization that knows, hey, I can throw any idea up against the wall, let's see if it sticks. 
then you just get this thinking kind of organism that becomes something bigger than itself. And it, it just leads towards success over and over. Jesus, Rourke, you're getting me jacked up over here. Final part about your training. I want to know, was there one thing that you still distinctively remember that you said, damn it, that was absolutely insanely difficult, even though you were able to complete it? Um, it's a good question. I, I joke about this. I've told this story before. People think I'm kidding. And it's like one of those where, where, you know, I'm telling like the backward story of, of, of something that couldn't have been hard. As I told you, I, I, I had a real hard time in math growing up. I got to skip it basically all the way through college because of a learning disability. And I focus on some other things. We, when you get into dive training, you have to understand the physics and the math of, of going underwater and the pressures and the, you know, the dive tables to keep yourself getting injured. So you have to take or, or killed underwater. You have to take an actual physics, a math test in second phase of SEAL training to pass, you know, dive training and dive physics. I literally thought I wasn't going to become a SEAL because I thought I was going to fail the math test. And I did the first time I took it. And then God bless him, the senior chief instructor, SEAL, liked me. You know, he knew I was a good, a good young lion, a good candidate, and I think a good officer. He's like, hey, I'll, I'll, I'll kind of mentor you and tutor you all night to get through this test. I, I swear, I think he even like faked the scores on my second test to get me through. <laughs> it was like a gift. He's like, I think this kid's worth more than, than his math abilities. I honestly think the only thing that would have stopped me in SEAL training was the math test. So that was probably the most stressful moment of my training sequence. No, I mean, you, you mentioned your instructor there backing you up. And one thing I love about the SEAL culture is it's a brotherhood. And, and the guy next to you yeah. is just as important. Do you have any other memories of the, the guys on the teams backing someone else up, maybe at a time that they failed and, and they could have been held responsible? I mean, too, too, too many to even count, you know, obviously in a single podcast. I mean, that, that when we do, when we talk about uh, the brotherhood and the teams when, when seals, if seals were at a, a, an event, like let's say we're at a cocktail party and there was someone else in the room that was like, Hey, I got to introduce you to this guy. You guys are from the same organization. We, we, if we didn't know that person, we wouldn't say, Oh, is he a seal? We would say, is he a team guy? And team guys is how we talk about one another. So that, that's, that says a lot about the organization when you just consider yourself part of a team and subjugated to this like greater good that's more important than who you are. The only thing you can do is bring either credit or or discredit, you know, honor or dishonor to the organization. And people take pretty seriously wanting to bring credit to and improve and be part of it, not be the weak link and not the thing that um, brings people down. I, I mean, it's I have so many, it's even hard to like think of the one time one teammate backed up another. I mean, you know, I remember a good buddy of mine that I, I talked to last week, we were training, doing dive training out in um, Newport, Rhode Island. Uh, we'd all gone out to the bars tonight. We had like very few time off to go like celebrate and have a good time. And our guys like to party and we're all young at that point and want to go out and do that. I'm not a drinker. So, so I was always kind of the designated driver, at least someone that was kind of taking care of the crew uh, from the, you know, the probably solitary sober mind in the room. But I remember one of my good buddies, another officer friend of mine, he, he, he had, he had probably had too much to drink. He was a national championship boxer at the United States Naval Academy. So this guy, this guy did not have a problem in a basic barroom brawl, but he ended up exiting the room. I, I saw him leave the, leave the bar and, and I saw a couple of guys follow him. 
And so I went shooting out because I was like, man, I think my buddy's in trouble. And he literally got this sounds like something I made up from a movie. He'd gone over this kind of grassy knoll, this like hill over into a parking lot. And so I'm running out there and there's two guys following him. I'm like, well, no problem. Two of us against two of them. Life's good. I'm a big boy. He's a good, he's a, he's a, he's a boxer. We're in good shape. I get over this hill. There's probably nine like townies, locals there from Newport that were kind of waiting for him. And so these two guys were behind him and they kind of grabbed him and kind of threw him in this mix. And I came up over the hill and I was like, well, it's probably not going to work out all that good. The two of us against, you know, 11 guys, but that's the way we roll. So I just dove in there full power and started swinging and he was swinging. And and we made a couple of guys pay early that I think suited us well, you know, usually in a fight, you can tell who the fighters are and who the part-timers are, you know, the guys that don't actually want to be there. And I think we hammered two of the full timers enough that we probably took the legs out of, you know, six or seven other guys. Like, I don't want anything to do with these two. And eventually retreated. I mean, I grabbed them. We, we bolted out of there, but there's uh there's nothing you wouldn't do for a teammate. And that's, that's small stuff compared to what I saw people do on the battlefield for buddies. It, it's a special, it's a special organization. Man, I could light up a few cigars, hear those stories all night. Now I know you're a humble guy, yeah. but I, I need you to share this next story because this absolutely sent chills down my spine. So after you finished buds, I, I know the structure is a little different to when you get your trident uh, now as compared to when you were in there and you went to army ranger school. And upon the day of you getting your actual seal trident, um, one of your instructors shared a story with your dad and your dad didn't end up telling you this story. I think you mentioned about a decade later. Can you share that story about your time at army ranger school? Yeah. I, you know, when I showed up at my, my seal team, the commanding officer that was there, a uh, great commanding officer, I didn't really get a lot of interface with him because he was getting ready to turn over the command. Um, but he had come from JSOC joint special operations command. So it was very important for him that all his junior officers go to ranger school to kind of learn, you know, learn the army, go to one of their elite programs, kind of get a bona fides with them. So you could speak army and get, get connected to them. Cause he, he really saw the benefits of the joint world of military operations. I think it was, it was, it was, it was forward thinking. And so, so if you were a junior officer at SEAL team four in that era, you pretty much had to go to ranger school. The unique thing for me is the way the timing worked out. I went to ranger school before I earned my SEAL Trident. So even though I was at SEAL Team 4, assigned there and passed SEAL training, I wasn't a SEAL yet. I was just still a, a candidate. So um, I go down to ranger school. This is omnipresent in my mind. The other three guys that are there already have their Trident. So look, if it goes bad for them, they're going back to a SEAL team and, you know, probably no harm, no foul. For me, I'm thinking to myself, if I go back to a SEAL team failing or up ranger school, I'm probably never going to be a SEAL. So I wouldn't have probably gone any less hard if that hadn't been the case, but I may, I may have picked up the pace a little bit. And uh, Ranger School is brutal. They got a great program there. I mean, there's no, I don't compare the different programs. I don't think that way about the different organizations. People will be better or worse. We're all teammates and, and trying to get the job done. But it's a tough program. And the way they do it is they starve you instead of putting the cold, we use the cold water and physical misery. They use a lot of um, hiking through the woods with heavy backpacks and, and starving you. So that's kind of the process. And, and, for whatever reason, on almost no food, my body seems to still work pretty well. So I'm probably a big dude. And actually, the reality is I probably have more fat stores than I should. So I can keep going hard when other people can't. But for whatever reason, my body didn't break down as much as others when it came to some of the things going on. So there, there were guys that got to a point that I really respected and cares about army guys and Air Force guys in my company, in my squad that I, I borderline picked up on my shoulders and carried through certain parts of that train because I wanted them to see the finish line. I thought that was my job as a teammate and as a buddy. 
And so, yeah, I, I, I came back from that training and I, I was, I was horribly beat up. I mean, I had stress fractures in my legs, my feet were destroyed. And I, and I actually flew back from ranger training and I was a week late for seal advanced training, which I have to complete to go become a seal. And and so the docs were like, Hey, you should probably wait six months and start with the next class. And I was like, absolutely not. And I had to appeal to my commanding officer and say, Hey, I, I do not want to miss this training window. I know I'm broke. As long as I can skip a couple of the runs, I think I can still do everything else and I'll recover as I go. He said, sure enough, go do it. And I, you know, passed that training, finished it and, and earned my bird. But the day I earned that trident, that story was actually from my commanding officer. And, and what I didn't realize is I guess I'd come back, you know, so skinny and like emaciated and my feet were so bad and I was limping around that my commanding officer, that this was the new guy who became, you know, one of the great leaders in my life and certainly one of the great leaders in the history of the SEAL teams. He called the colonel that runs ranger training was like, what did you do to my guy? I mean, not for nothing. I know training's hard, but he's walking around like he just left a concentration camp. And so the colonel, you know, pulled the strings like, well, let me find out, you know, officer to officer. He wanted to make sure he answered, you know, a Navy buddy honestly and got back to him. And I guess he pulled the string and and I guess some of the instructors just like that Denver kid, like walked people on his back. I mean, he hurt himself to help others. That's why he won one of the honor graduate awards at the, at the school and, and, and did that. So yeah, he told my dad that story. My dad is real. Like, you know, he doesn't, it's not that he doesn't give out praise, but I think he's, he's, he's careful on wanting to make sure, you know, our heads don't get too big, my brother and I, and make sure we're, we're, we're good men. So he, he saved that for much later in my career, but uh, definitely special to hear it later, later in my, my seal adventure that, uh, that, that had been, you know, what my commanding officer had heard about my performance down there. And, and, you know, guys helped me there equally as much as I helped them. That's a good part of the job. Yeah, no, I absolutely love that. You shared that story. I know how humble you are. So I appreciate that. I know the listeners do as well. After you get your Trident, I mean, what is the mind shift like from Trident to actual deployment? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, you know, you, you, it's, it's strange in the era that I served, I feel real lucky that I got uh, two or three years of kind of pre 9-11 SEAL life. And then I got a whole lot of years of chasing bad guys because of the way the world unfolded. You know, pre 9-11, the SEAL teams were just these rugged, it, it was just like the ultimate fraternity, I would say. You know, I mean, we worked out every day hard. We we got to jump out of planes and blow things up and shoot guns. And Friday, there'd be beer on the, on the, on the grinder. We'd go, you know, do a, a ridiculously hard workout that nobody would ever want to do. And then we'd go celebrate for the weekend. And um, it was just a whole bunch of you know, brawling and fighting and playing rough and taking care of one another and just kind of feeling like these, you know, these incredible naval commandos. The problem was there wasn't any way to actually go do the job. There weren't any bad guys to chase. There weren't missions going on. So you, you were you were somewhat excited to be that guy and a little bit disappointed that there wasn't any work. Um, and then it then it just erupted. You know, you, you, the thing that transitioned from making it through SEAL training to the teams, you realize now I got to get serious about acquiring the skills and particularly as an officer, learning how to lead, learning how to run the, you know, run the processes, run briefs, you know, lead the boys, learn from the senior enlisted who are the real corporate knowledge base in the SEAL teams and just become a capable officer and operator. So when the call comes, you're ready. And so pre 9-11, you did that to the best of your ability, not knowing what ready really looked like. Then 9-11 unfolded, we got thrown into the fight. And I think those of us that were in the, the heat of that, my, my team is definitely worse. I got very lucky. I mean, we consider ourselves lucky, not that we want the world 
to de- descend into chaos, but we're kind of the guys that are ready to go jump into that fight. So when, when the call came, then it transitioned from, okay, pre 9-11 seal, fit, ready to shoot and go do the job to let's go shoot and do the job. And so that becomes another transition into an actual combat leader and learning those lessons and, and um, you know, climbing up that hill at a very high rate of speed to make sure you do it right. So it's a, it's a pitiless, uh, a pitiless experience as far as learning, but um, if you do it right, you pull some of the best lessons I think any human will ever, ever get to be exposed to. Yeah, I mean, speaking about lessons, something that you do incredibly well and I really appreciate is how you take some of these phrases and turn them almost into life lessons and something you can learn so much from. And I'd like to uncover a few of those if you're cool with that. The first one being, look at less, you'll see more. This is something I know you picked up on, I think from a sniper. You Can you talk about that? Yeah, one of my best friends. Yeah, he actually retires next week. He's a community legend over at our top tier team. Um, one of the best snipers and shooters in, in the history of our organization. Uh, he and I were, I was in my first platoon. It was his second platoon before he went to kind of our all-star team. Um, but I remember we we just, to, to truncate the story so I don't, you know, take the entire podcast telling stories, you know, we were, we were basically in a, a sniper position where we were using our binoculars to, to um, do reconnaissance on, on a mission set. And every time I thought I was seeing something important. He would have seen it first. He would have already reported it. He would report things he was seeing off on this hillside. I've got the same pair of binos. I'm like looking at my binoculars being like, do my binoculars work the same way this guy's binocular work? He just saw everything before I saw it. And I was a little bit demoralized. When Demoralized, not the right word, but I was a little bit down when I got back. We were cleaning our weapons. And I remember pulling him aside. I was just like, God, I do not understand how we're both looking at the same hillside. You're seeing everything and I'm seeing nothing. And he just very calmly, not knowing that this was going to be uh, an impactful moment in my life, he said, well, you, are you looking at the whole hillside? I was like, yeah, of course I was looking at the whole side. He's like, well, that's your problem. He said, you got to break that hillside into digestible parts. You got to either put a grid on it or use a pie system. You got to burn into these individual spots, see what you see. If you don't see anything, log it, move on. And he said, you, you'll start picking apart the hillside when you start like really burning in. And then as he leaves the room, he just says, as if it didn't mean anything to him, boss, if you look at less, you'll see more. And I mean, it was like a drop the mic moment for my career because not only was a great tactic for what you do in the field and now as a hunter and outdoorsman, I know how to use binoculars to pick apart a hillside and find what I'm looking for. It became a much better leadership lesson than a tactic. It was, you know, as a leader, you're going to have so much on your plate. You're going to have so much that you're responsible for that if you try and look at all of it, you're going to get nothing done. And we all know this on a personal level from your to-do list, right? You got 15 things on it and you get none of it done. If you just say, if I get one or two done today, I'm going to have 13 items on my to-do list and I'll get to attack it again tomorrow. So it just became a great life lesson. That's the, that's the look at less, see more. Yeah, no, that's a lesson we think about, but I mean, the, the way that story encapsulates it, it was just awesome. So thanks for sharing that. I mean, you guys operate in chaos almost all the time, it seems like. And, and one of the phrases I loved was calm is contagious. What, what does that mean to you being a, a SEAL? Yeah, that was another one I learned, you know, early in my career. A couple of these came so early, it was just real gifts for my my, my kind of leadership journey and development in the SEAL teams and frankly as a as a human or as a man. And and that that was one of those from a, a senior enlisted and you know, another enlisted guy in the SEAL teams, a mass chief petty officer that that taught me that 
never are you going to be able if you ever lose your mind if you're screaming yell i mean sometimes you got to yell because bullets are loud but i mean if you're ever like panicked out of control and losing it you're not going to be able to lead the troops and that the troops at a minimum you know the guys you're leading or the folks you're in charge of this doesn't have to be on the battlefield this is going to be in the corporate world or in the boardroom you know they the the, the troops look at leadership and at a minimum, at a minimum are going to mimic your behavior, right? They're going to mimic what you do. In the SEAL teams, the guys are so aggressive, they're going to amplify what you do. So if you're keeping it together, they'll keep it together. And if you're losing it, they're going to lose it. That's a guarantee. So he kind of shared with us this calm is contagious line. And this, he just told us about it because we, we had a, a guy in the base, of course, that was kind of screaming and losing his mind. And, and, it, and it was, it was creating this frenetic pace that we couldn't all keep up with. And he just told us this calm is contagious. And, and he said, it, it, I'm telling you, if you guys keep it together as leaders, the boys will keep it together and you'll get the job done. And I've never seen it proven false in the battlefield. I've never seen someone lose their mind and not see things fall apart. And I've never seen a situation so bad that when people didn't keep their head, focus on the work and do the job and set the example that it didn't go well. Yeah. I mean, we have a lot of high level leaders, CEOs, coaches, and they're definitely going to take that advice. Another thing that you do, and I love this, uh, your email signature, you put the word onward. And I mean, that phrase, that ethos ever onward exists because the world needs strong, authentic, enduring leaders. When did you first develop that ethos? I started signing my emails onward somewhere midway through my SEAL career. So I did 13 active duty years. I bet uh, about the time I made lieutenant, um, so five years in, something like that, four or five years in, maybe lieutenant commander, somewhere in there. Um, that word just popped into my brain. I don't know. There's something about it when I, well, one, it was like, every email, I didn't want to say cheers or something that, you know, everybody else wrote. So I needed something, you know, I like being a little bit unique and having something uh, that's probably a coach Simmons things, a little bit of an artistic flair. Like, like, you know, now I, I love literature and language and the power of that something about onward just kind of resonated with me. Just the idea of, of constantly advancing. I and mean, there's times on the battlefield or in life to, uh, I don't like the word retreat, but maybe to to back off or take a pause. But usually, the person that's advancing the fight, that that's moving forward in the struggle, are are the ones that um, are the ones that win the day. So something about onward just always struck me. So I signed, you know, probably for almost ten years, and now it'll probably be for the rest of my life. I signed my emails onward, and then then my name, and then I created this leadership brand, my my brand, which you find at you know RourkeDenver.com, which is my website, and I just said ever onward would be the ultimate expression of that too forever be moving forward and advancing the ball. So ever onward is why I created that, you know, that brand. And, and that's, that's where that comes from. Yeah. I mean, the, the first time I saw one of your emails and saw that I must've pondered that in silence for about an hour and, and just thought about the impact. Oh, I love it. Yeah, no, thought about the impact that has. I mean, I know we only have a few more minutes left. I asked the listeners if they could ask you anything and I got an overwhelming number of questions and this one was a reoccurring one. So many of the people just want to know, What's your daily routine like these days? Are, are you embracing suf suffering at all anymore? I mean, what do you, what's a typical day like for Rourke Denver? No, I love that question. So I get up early. I mean, I think uh, one of the real gifts you give yourself is getting up early. One, get a good night's sleep. Seven, nine hours, that's critical. It's a non-negotiable. If you haven't you know, read the science on it, if you think you're one of the less than 1% 
of the humans on Earth that have this weird, like, chromosome that lets you get four hours of sleep a night and still be fine, you're probably not. Seven, nine hours sleep. So go to bed early. Nothing good happens late at night anyway. Let's be honest about that. And then you get up early before the sun, so you kind of attack the day. I mean, you know, it sounds like the the, the old Marine commercial, but I, I do get more done in the morning, you know, before some people wake up than a lot of people will get done all day. But I, I get up early. Um, I, I take some time to, like, focus myself. Some people would call that meditation. I'm probably leaning towards it being meditation, but just taking some time to think and breathe. Breathing is another life hack that um, a lot of people don't realize the potency of breathing, whether that be through yoga or just doing meditative breathing where you're purposeful about your breath in and out and that oxygen going in and out is just a complete life hack to center yourself, to calm yourself, to focus yourself. So I do that. I get a workout in and get a sweat in. I try and make that hard because I think as goes the mind, goes the body, goes the spirit, those three things are just unbelievably intertwined. And if you think you've got you know, your mind right, but you don't have your body right, that I'm telling you, there's a weakness there. You got to do those things. Um, And then I just try and make my day purposeful, learn something, um, grind out the work I need to do, and then also really celebrate and enjoy my time and have fun. I I think people at this point, um, we've created this life with social media and all this stuff where we're, I feel like looking at other people's lives and envious of it. And, and we all know it's, it's, it's a total fantasy anyway. People curate like the one best photograph from a weekend that probably didn't even happen. And then you're looking at somebody else thinking they're living a better life than you and that they're probably more miserable than you are. So I try and stay off that stuff. Um, even though social media is an ill that seems somewhat required to move information around. But um, I, I just try and enjoy my time with my family. I do things I love. Um, people ask me a lot, you know, when when I when I kind of finish with my time of service, you know, they come back and they're like, man, how, how can we pay you back? You know, how, how do we pay back service members? And, and there's tangible ways to do that with, you know, helping outreach and veteran service organizations that work with um, soldiers that are in need. The best answer I ever came up with is really enjoy your life and live well. I mean, that's what we're fighting for. We're fighting for this greatest experiment and this greatest country on earth. And I say that unabashedly, there's a lot of other good countries out there and, and I've been to a bunch of them and I honor them and who they are. I, I think we're still unique in the world. And, and the only way we're going to screw it up is doing it to ourselves. But honestly, if you want to, you want to honor somebody that served, go live a great life, have fun, do good things, be good to people, treat other people like you want to want to be treated. And, uh, we'll get to good places in our lives. You know, those, those are the things. So I get up early. I work as hard as I can each day. Uh, I take time to smell the roses and be with my family and, and, and water the relationships I have with my friends. And I go to bed early. I mean, you mentioned the family man. My wife just gave birth last week to our first son, and, and I'm wondering in yeah, this, in this almost thank you in this almost pussified world and people lacking grit. What can I do now as a parent to to help instill some values in my son and, and help him grow up with a a toughness and a grittiness? Well, you know, it, uh, set the example first and foremost. I mean, nothing, nothing's going to have a greater impact than what you do. I mean, make sure you align what you do with what you say. But I would say what you do is going to resonate far greater than any single sentence or any piece of advice you're going to give them. So if, 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 if you're a person of honor, if you're somebody that's setting the example of the way you treat your bride, other people in the world, the way you treat waitstaff at a restaurant and at an airport and going through TSA, even though that's painful, if you treat them well, he's going to see that and he's going to know that. So first and foremost, set the example. And then I think all of us are, as parents, the, the, the thing I figured out being only a few years ahead of you is you, you cannot 
the, these kids, and you're gonna, you've already seen it, you're just going to see it more. They, they are who they are. The parent that thinks that they're going to make their kid something that they're not, might as well go try and figure out a way to stop the tide. Go, you, if you can stop the tide, then maybe you can help a kid be some, something other than who they are. I think the best parents help their kids become the best version of who they are, right? Like give them the tools to be the best version of, of what they want to pursue and what they want to do. And then it's this weird, um, this finite balance of hoping they get just enough amount of suffering and hardship without it breaking them, right? Like you want it just enough hard for them to learn those lessons that when hard time comes, they know how to handle it. Just enough suffering that they can be ready for suffering when it comes uh, without their life being nothing but suffering. So that, that, that's more art than science, but uh, you know, make them tie their shoes early. Let them, let them zip up their own jacket. Don't swoop in to help them on everything. They should fall off playgrounds and get hurt. That's all good stuff. Oh, amazing advice. And I look to a ton of great leaders and, and I can truly say that you are one of those distinct great leaders. I'll never forget uh, spending a week with our mutual friend, Drew Searle. He gave me your book, Damn Few. I read it. And ever since then, a few years ago, I, I've been looking to you for leadership. I know the listeners are going to absolutely love this conversation. You working on any new books now? I am. My brother and I are actually working on a proposal for one, um, uh, kind of in the human self-help, human performance space. Should be really cool. We're kind of starting to kick that around. Uh, and then, you know, for, for you and your listeners, this, uh, this ever onward brand is new. You know, we're starting to do these campfire sessions. We're going to start doing retreats. You can get on RourkeDenver.com and find my, my commander's coffees, which are video, um, posts that, uh, I'm trying to do at least once a month. I'm not trying to kill people with the, you know, every Tuesday, email that you know, a lot of people end up deleting. I want to make sure it's purposeful and good. Um, but yeah, more to come. There's going to be suffer sessions that I'm going to build up and all kinds of good things to help people uh, you know, tap into all the best that they can be. And I'm having a lot of fun with it. So uh, I appreciate the time and, and getting to um, kick these uh, concepts around with you. Yeah, no, we'll have all that linked up and I'll also get your social media and Twitter because I know you post a lot of great stuff there. But Rourke Denver, I can't thank you enough for your service and joining us on what got you there. I appreciate it, man. I enjoyed it. Let's do it again sometime in the future. You bet. Take care. All right, brother. Thank you. For the What Got You There listeners who love to travel and want to see the world, listen up. We've teamed up with Globekick, who make it affordable to enjoy peak life experiences with like-minded people from around the world. Globekick expertly designs, curates, and scouts global adventures for you to join. Each trip lasts one week and is designed to balance their unique blend of adventure, culture immersion, and relaxation. Globekick has some epic adventures planned, such as cage diving with great white sharks in Cape Town, South Africa, dog sledding and northern light chasing in Norway, and to see the rest, head to globekick.com. If you want to travel the world with your kind of people and not break the bank, then make sure to stop at globekick.com and enter code WGYT to receive 10% off your membership. What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with Shonda Laney? What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with got you, got you? Thanks for listening to another episode of What Got You There. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a review on iTunes and also share with your friends. Thanks so much. Looking forward to talking with you next time. If you want to stay up to date on all things I'm working on behind the scenes and everything we've got going on at What Got You There, head over to whatgotyouthere.com. You'll also be able to see more on podcast guests and what they're doing. Thanks to Justin Great for providing us the intro and outro song. If you like his music and want to find out more about what he's working on, head over to justingreat.com.